All right. Welcome to church. Good to see you here this morning. Um, I want to direct your attention to a welcome card that could look very much like the one that was sitting in front of me. It has kids writing on it or an adult who has terrible handwriting. Um, yours may look exactly like this. Uh, we use these just as a way of uh, getting to know you and um, also just communicating with the staff. We love to pray over uh, people. It's not the only way, but it's um, an easy way to kind of communicate with the staff. Sharon, come on up. We have some exciting things coming up that Sharon's going to let you know about. All right. Good morning. I'm Sharon Adam. And uh, a group of um, our NBC folk here are going to Mexico the last week of July, the first week of August. How about who's going? Stand up real quick. Tell me who's going. Show me, show me. Yeah. See, look at all. This week is part two of two in a sermon that got started last week. And if you missed last week, let me give you the cliff notes. This is last week's sermon in a minute or less. Uh, we talked about kind of the all-American concept of God helps those who help themselves. And we flipped that around a little bit and said, well, that's close, but it's really God helps those who help others as they help themselves. And we went with this idea that for the next couple of weeks, we were allowed to call our church neighbor-pleasing Bible church. So this is really part two of that. We looked at the, the who, how, and the why of welcoming, uh, that we really do this motivated to glorify God, that we welcome one another in, just as Christ has welcomed us in, to the glory of God, that when we do this, God will be glorified. We learned a new uh, Greek word, proslumbano, which is the idea of welcoming one another in, but it's so much more robust than just the word welcome. Welcome can feel like a handshake, and then I'm done. I've welcomed someone in, and this has something far different. And we looked at the idea that the burden, the obligation is really on the strong in the faith to be reaching out to those who might be weaker in faith. We looked at the idea of relational sloppiness, relational clumsiness, and relational ignorance, none of which is very pleasant. Um, probably all of us uh, you know, could grow in one of these areas. I saw some, some elbow nudging last week like this, you know, just kind of as you're sitting next to someone and they you know, kind of saw some things. And then finally, we talked about the idea of let's be proactive as a church in, in welcoming one another in. And let's emphasize the word active, and let's not emphasize the word pro, meaning we'll not wait until we're experts at welcoming people to just start loving on people the way that the scriptures have commanded us to. I hope that part of what last week did for you was this. I hope it stirred a little uh, appetite in you to say, okay, I get it. I need help in this. Where do I, where do I go for help? Really, part two this morning is saying, okay, there was the command that we're to reach out and welcome in those who are already in our midst and those who are outside of our doors. And I hope that, you know, this morning can be some instruction for us as to how to grow up in this area. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 12. That's where we're going where, where to be this morning. I don't know if you've ever asked for more of something when you're not already doing all that well with what currently you possess. So I grew up in a family with four boys. So food was an item where you asked for more long before you finished your plate. Because if you, if you waited, there may not be any left you know, from the other four, you know, three hungry animals that are at the table uh, feeding in, the, uh, in the, the, the feed pen there. But this happens with stuff, right? We, we get some stuff and, and the, the tags are hardly cut off. And we're already like, ooh, that's a nice pair of shoes over there too. You know? Or I've got this electronics. I don't really know how to work it very well. Never was very good with those, but the new version just came out, so I'll skip learning this one that I already own, and I'll just go right for that next one. This happens in relationships, too. 
I think sometimes we can ask for more, we can want for more, when we're not already doing all that well with what we already have right in front of us. And I want to pause for just a moment and ask this question. Do you ever wonder what that's about? Do you ever wonder what that is going on inside of your spirit that says, why do I keep asking for more? It might just be plain old-fashioned greed, which just says, gimme, gimme, gimme. Some is good, more must be better. So I just want more. It might be that the grass is greener somewhere over there. I've got this car, but I've heard that car has, you know, such an easy, uh, you know, reliability record, and I, I'm just so sick of dealing with this car. Um, and, and maybe it's along these lines. Maybe in relationships particularly, there's something about the thrill of the new and the hard work of the already known. So here's the thing. One of the, one of the powerful things about a family is that you already know each other's strengths and weaknesses. Now, there's always more to grow and learn, but it's hard work sometimes just getting along with and dealing with people you already know. And sometimes there is a thrill to the new. Don't you see people? I know no one in this room has ever been like this, but you know of other people who get into romantic relationships, and it goes really well for a while, and then something blows up, and then they go, well, I'm just going to ditch that one and go on to the next one. And by about the eighth one, their friends finally speak up and say, Right? It seems like right at that 14-month mark, you're, you're just all out of patience for people, and you move on to the next one. There's something about the thrill of the new and the hard work of the old that can, that can sometimes get us doing that. We're talking about pleasing our neighbors, and um, really the focus of Romans 12 and Romans 15, to be sure, is inside the church. It's pleasing neighbors that are sitting right next to you in the church family already. And we are really starting with the, with the emphasis of how to welcome those who are already at church, because that's exactly where God starts with this. God starts with, let your family unit be a blessing. Welcome one another really well there. That's a greenhouse for figuring this stuff out and growing up in this. And let that spill out and be a blessing to others. Church family, begin to have families come together and really learn how to do this well. And let that spill out and be intentional about bringing other people in. But don't you see kind of the mixed up pattern? If we're not living this out well in this room, and I don't just mean on Sundays for an hour, but if we're not really welcoming one another well in this church, why would we pray to God, God, send us more souls, send us more hangups, Send us more crushed dreams. Send us more uh, besetting sins and ongoing temptation because we're just killing it in here if we're not. So, so my prayer for us as a church over these two weeks is this, is to say, God, would you grow us up in this room to really welcome one another well inside the church family? As we talk about this, I'm really convinced there's no need for fresh thinking in this area, just fresh obedience. It's not like the problem for you has been, oh, proslambano, that's what that Greek word is. Now I can start really welcoming people. I just didn't know the Greek. Like, none of us are in that camp, right? We, it's not that we didn't know that. And probably the things I'm going to say to you today, they're right out of Scripture, and you're going to go, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian at all. Just a relational, you know, cognizant person can kind of come up with some of these things. So it's not that we need new information necessarily, it's just that we need fresh obedience in this. We need reminders. I need reminders in, in this kind of living. Is there anyone in this room who's been recently engaged? 
perchance. Oh, Trevor, you're remaining really quiet in the back. Stand up for one moment. Give it up for Trevor, because Trevor's about to get married. <clears throat> all right, you can sit down, Trevor. We have a lot to learn from Trevor, and, and not just Trevor, but, but all recently engaged people. When you meet someone who's been recently engaged, who are they thinking about and talking about to you? Their fiance, right? Unless they're an absolute egomaniac, then they're talking about themselves and their fiance. But mostly it's their fiance, right? And just getting around engaged people is really, really exciting. It's so fun to me to, to just be around them and, 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 and talk to them because their brains are constantly thinking of ways to express their love to their fiance. Nothing's grown cold yet, right? I mean, they're just super excited. Think about the word. They're engaged, right? They're not disengaged. They're not blasé about it. They're engaged in this process. Now, here's why I say we have a lot to learn from them. Ask this question. What is a reasonable limit for a fiancé to be expressing his or her love to, to their future spouse? You ask that person and they'd say, listen, the sky's the limit. Like, there is no reasonable limit. And frankly, they're not interested in limits, right? They're not interested in performing the bare minimum duty. What do I have to do to just kind of really show I deeply care and love this gal? That's not where their brain's at. Their brain is, I can't just express and say words of how much I love you. I need to do something. I need to demonstrate something. And so guys and gals, it's just amazing because they'll, they'll drive all night from San Jose down to L.A. to like leave a rose you know, under a, uh, what's the thing? Windshield wiper. Uh, under a windshield wiper and just drive home and not say anything. And you're like, you know, like the logical engineer person's going, that's completely impractical. Right? And the person's like, I know. isn't that great? And, and then the girl just comes out and she realizes, wow, that's from, that's from my sweetie. He drove all the way. That's just remarkable. And the guy's just like, man, I'm just getting warmed up. And he starts dreaming up the next thing. Do you see why it's important to spend time around? Uh, this might be the best marriage counseling ever. Just get, just get an old crotchety couple near an engaged couple and say, start having dinner once a week and talking about relationships, right? Now, there's mutual learning that goes on. But, man, we could get something from engaged people. What if, church, what, what, if we, what if we just started trying to mimic on some small scale what engaged people are thinking about? Where, where we're not just going, all right, what do I have to do to kind of be a good church member and kind of be welcoming? I told us my Christian duty. I'm supposed to be doing stuff. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'll pray for you. I mean, you kind of learn a few Christian cliches and you hope you're done, right? What, what if instead we just said, God, would you fill me? with a love for people the way that you love people? Would you give me eyes to see people and, 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 and a longing and a, and, a, and a power to come alongside them and really welcome them in, really love them well? My hunch is this. My hunch is a lot of us in this room, partly by testimony that you're sitting in here and you came back after last week and you want to hear more, it's just the, the heart is, yeah, I, I do want to do that, but, but where do I start? Or how do I kind of re-engage with this? Because, gosh, I used to be a lot like that, and I've gotten busy or whatever else. And that's what this scripture is going to talk about this morning. Uh, it's going to really focus on that. Romans chapter 12, kind of this, this second half of the chapter, is one of the most succinct places in all of scripture that I know of that, that takes a lot of commands and a lot of imperatives, and it says, and it just kind of crams it into one small little component. There are 13 imperatives in this passage we're going to look at. And frankly, each one of these 
could be a title of sermon where we could just look at it and see what God wants from us. But instead, we're just going to make um, some of these a point and just kind of fly at about 10,000 feet and look at it in a little bit less detail. Here's, here's again what I want to say at the very start of this before I read the passage. I don't think there's a, there's a need for deeper study. I, I just don't think our biggest problem is we just don't know enough. I think there's just a whole lot of doing that, that has to either continue because some people are doing this amazingly well and need to teach the rest of us. Uh, and some of you have just gotten you know, kind of sidetracked with, with things. And some of you have never heard this before. So Romans chapter 12, ver- starting in verse 9. Look at how much is packed into one short little paragraph. Here it is. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. All right. Let your breath out. That's a lot right there, right? I mean, you read that short little paragraph, and there's just a lot crammed in there. Let's take these mostly one at a time. Some of them I'm going to combine. To kind of put this in just some language that we can grab handles onto, if you're taking notes, here's the first one. Stop pretending to love. Love is primary to everything else that's going to be talked about. Um... But it must be sincere. If you think about it, every single day you are making distinctions on an ongoing basis about what is true and about what is fake. A lot of us get posts and things on our phones and we're like, can that video really be true? You know, can cats really do that? Uh, you know, or whatever else. And so we're, we're making discernments, right? We're eating a meal and, and we're, we're, we're concerned about what's really true. We had a discussion yesterday by chance about nacho cheese, that nacho cheese sauce. Like, what is that really made of? You know, there can't be real cheese in that. And so you look and you're, you're constantly making these little discernments about, about what is true and about what is fake. And even before quality of love or quantity of love, you want to know if it's true. Because frankly, lots of high quality fakeness is really useless, right? It's useless in our church. We've got, we've got tons of love. There's a high quantity. You know, it's really terrible. There's lots of it, you know, or, or you know, it's not high, 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 or it is high quality, but it's fake. It's not true. If it's not sincere, everything else kind of crumbles around that. Um, start looking at your scriptures. I'm not even going to take time to, to pull them up. But I started just noticing all over that this idea of sincere love is really prevalent in the scriptures. Over and over, we're called back to it because of our tendency toward hypocrisy. Isn't it easier to just put on a smile than really deal with the issues? Right? Isn't it easier to just kind of gloss over things than to really engage and, and love someone? Jesus shows us the loving life. Look at, uh, look at 1 John chapter 3. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up, gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then he gets really tangible with this, lest we leave that in some ethereal kind of um, principle zone that never takes traction. He says, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's, let us show the truth by our actions. Look at that last line. Let us show the truth by 
our actions. That's what sincere love is all about, that it takes the form of actions. Actions speak louder than words. Turns out that's biblical, right? We say that right here in 1 John. Real love doesn't spend a lot of time talking about what, um, what it's going to do or talking about what has been, been done. Real love is about doing. Real love is about getting in the car, gassing it up, and joyfully driving all the way down Highway 5 to go put a rose under someone, someone's car that you love and, and care about. I want you to answer the following question for yourself. I pretend to love when blank. It could be that certain modes that you get into personally kind of in a funk, that that's when the, the pretender comes out. That's when insincere love begins to take hold. It might be around a certain group of people. I don't know what it is, but when I get around my extended family, this is what comes out. Or when I get around my church family, or when I get around work, I just find it so hard to be real with them. I pretend to love when, and then fill in the blank. And maybe here's the prayer is this. God, would you fill me up with real love? Would you take what's false about that and throw it away, and would you bring real love in that? All right, number two. This command to love acts as kind of a foundation for all that follows. So if you get, if you get stop pretending to love right, you're on the right track to kind of let the rest of these take root. Here's number two. Hate evil and hold on for dear life to good. And if you understand evil and good and the seriousness with which the Bible speaks about sin, you realize that holding on for dear life is exactly what's at stake. Your life is at stake here. There's this dual command here in verse 9. Run from and cling to. Not only are you and I sorting through every single day what's real, what's false, we're also sorting through this in our minds. What is good and what is bad? What is something that's worth hanging on to and what's worth not only discarding but throwing out in the trash and quickly getting to the curb as far as possible and waiting for the person to just take that stuff away? We're constantly sorting this through. Parents, think about what you're doing with your kids. Aren't you helping them until they can steer on their own? Aren't you helping them steer toward good and away from evil, right? One of the things that parents do just kind of by nature is this. They're, they're looking to nurture their kids' appetites. And when they're toddlers and they're little, they're talking about veggies and you know, kind of a balanced diet. But when they become teens, a little bit older, we're talking about nurturing appetites with regard to our eyes and what we look at. And in terms of our heart and what we really give our heart to. And in terms of technology, you know, t t technology is just this great thing. But if you don't nurture the appetite for what's out there, it's a terrible thing. Cling to what is good. Run from what is evil. Abhor it. That means detest it, hate it. If you and I didn't see so dimly all the time, we would see good for what good really is and not need to be commanded, run towards that, hang on to that for dear life. And we would have kind of the veil pulled back and see what evil really is and see, what, see how bad bad really can be. And you wouldn't have to tell us, run from that. We would, we would be repulsed by it, and we would detest it. But this life of faith is a huge struggle, right? And every single one of us, in a myriad of ways, just represented in this one room alone, we get duped. We get the wool pulling over our eyes, and we start thinking, well, it's not that bad. You heard that? Have you used that in your own brain? I have. 
It's not that bad. You know, it's, it's only a week old cheese with minor hair on it. It should still be... It's not that bad, right? There's a key to this battle of hating evil and holding on for dear life. And it's this. It's the, the victor. To the victor go the spoils. Who's the victor? The victor is Jesus Christ. He's won the battle over sin. Thereby setting captives free. You and I as Christians no longer have to sin. We're not shackled to sin. We are now free to choose good or evil, cling or run. When Jesus invades your life, he begins um, to peel back some of the layers and you begin to kind of smell evil for what it is. The other thing about becoming a Christian is he begins to replace your desires. I love the stories that are represented just in this room of saying, you know, it's not so much that I just had to willpower myself away from that. It's that as soon as I saw the bigger and better desire over here, this didn't even appeal to me anymore. Not for all of time. There's a wrestling match that goes on. But don't you love it when you've been a Christian for a season and you look back and you go, how can people find that attractive? And then God brings to your mind to kind of just humble you and and celebrate his grace. And you go, oh yeah, that was me. And I used to find that attractive. That used to be something that I would settle for and say, I know it's not perfect, but I'll go after that because it's good enough. And that's part of the way the Christian life works, is God replaces weaker, poor desires with something bigger and much better. And so this dual nature of run from, cling to, is seen in our life. Here's my question for you this morning. Do I have a growing distaste for the stench of evil? Just ask yourself that question. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've made a profession of faith and said, Jesus, come and invade my life. Come and replace evil desires with good desires. Over time, do I have a growing distaste for the stench of evil? Now, here's a subtle little nuance. Not just the effects that evil has in my life. I'm bummed out when those things happen. But for evil itself. Does the rottenness in my nostrils of evil make me flinch and want to pull away? One of the things that, um, that I do to my children is I strap them to a board of some kind and I throw them out into the surf. And, um, and uh, as they're learning to bodyboard or surf or whatever they're doing, uh, it's mostly by free will. Uh, sometimes there's a little bit of coercion that goes on. Um, but as I'm watching them uh, learn to kind of struggle and, and be out there in the ocean, um, you know, there's a sense where uh, when, when, they're, when they're kind of flailing in the surf and they, they come up for air, their, natu- their, their most natural thing is this. They turn to dad and they want to kind of swim to dad to have dad pick them up. Dad's really close to them. Dad's really like, like, like within this, you know, range of them. But as soon as they pop up out of the surface and the the surf's coming, I tell them two things. I say, one, your board's that way. So they're strapped to a board. They're strapped to something that will save them, that they can hang on to and be totally fine. And the second thing I tell them is, don't look at me. Look at the surf that's coming because there's another wave coming in a couple of seconds and you need to be ready for it. So this was just yesterday. Just yesterday, um, Eli is an absolute madman in the water and you can't keep him out of the water. And he came up, and he just he loves it bigger and more and more and more and more. And he was right there, and he came up with this giant smile 
And he comes to me, and I stepped away, and he goes, oh, yeah. And he turns around, and he grabs the board. And he's on the board, and he's on that thing in a heartbeat, and he's paddling back out for more punishment. The reason that I do that is not because I'm a bad dad. It's not because I don't want to hug my kids. It's not because I don't want to rescue them. I want them thinking in their brain, when they're out there as a junior hire, I want them thinking, man, this is my lifeline. This isn't a casual take it or leave it. Eh, maybe I'll go to the board. Maybe I won't. I want them to instinctively go, where's my board? I've got to grab onto that thing. I'm getting tired here. Cling to what is good. Your life depends, friends, on clinging to what is good. Your father is there, not there to rescue you out of every trial, the moment that you have trial. Sometimes you look up and go, Dad, how come you're stepping away? Cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil. Here's my last question on this one. How's your grip on good? Is it casual? Is it take it or leave it? Is it, is it like not much is at stake? Or do you cling to good like your life depends on it? Let me just read for you a verse that models this strong serving the weak that we looked at last week. The obligations on the strong to serve the weak. This is Paul talking like a father. 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. When you read Paul's letters to the people that he was discipling, he pleaded with them. He comforted them. He challenged them. He urged them. He rebuked them. All of that was for their good. Why? He did it because he knew a lot was at stake. He'd be a terrible pastor if he went, well, take it or leave it, it's up to you. He cared about these people, so he said, please listen to me. You're doing it again. You're leaving what's good and you're clinging to what's evil. Death awaits you. Please stop. Verse 10, love well. Love well by being affectionate. Now, this term brotherly affection that you see in chapter 10, some of your translations say it a little bit differently, but brotherly affection conjures up some interesting concepts for those of you with brothers, right? Uh, when I think of my brothers and the affection I showed my younger brother and the affection I received from my older brothers, I thought, you know, you, you want to give me trick, you know, trick gum that's actually black pepper gum and cause me to throw up? That's what you want me to do? Um, you know, you want me to pull pranks on you? Um, you want me to put snail guts in my, my friend's hairs? Like, you know, th- is that what you mean by, by brotherly affection? So, so there might be a little bit of redemption needed for, for that, for some of you who had certain kinds of brothers. Um, it probably doesn't mean punch them the number of times they are old on their birthday necessarily, right? Um, but what it means is that this, this family affection that ought to be there in families is, is how you're to love well. He's pointing to the family as an example. Uh, we just looked at Paul being like a father, how he urged them like a father. Now look what he says, how he's Paul like the mother. First Thessalonians 2 says this, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. 
Let me give you kind of a well-rounded picture of what loving well looks like. It ought to have brotherly affection. It ought to have the, the urging and the protection of a father. It ought to have the gentle and tenderness of a, of a mother. This is all from the same person, Paul, writing this. What he's saying is you ought, you ought to have that family love, that, that family care and protection that you always dreamed of, the way that you know it could be in a family, the way that you know that it should be in a family. Now, showing affection to people really takes attentiveness and creativity. Here's why. Because what might speak to one person doesn't speak to another person. What's really affectionate to to one person is actually kind of off-putting to someone else. What you think speaks loudly about what, what a loving thing to do is might be completely missed on someone else. So it really takes being attentive to that person. And also takes some, some creativity. Not to just have kind of a standard thing. Well, I slap everyone on the back. That's my thing. I just slap them on the back. Well, you might want to get more creative than that because you might be bothering a lot of people, right? Look at um, the screen for a moment. Um, This is Paul at the end of Romans in just a couple of chapters from where we are right now. 22 times he's greeting people. And I don't know if you're like me, but um, I was reading something the other day in the Bible, and it was a genealogy. And a lot of times when I'm reading a genealogy, I say, Lord, by faith, I recognize that all of Scripture is profitable for me. That somehow these lima beans of, you know, of genealogy are going to be helpful to me. And honestly, in that moment, God brought a little insight to me. I thought, thank you. That was, you know, I was complained, and God gave me a little something that, that day. Uh, sometimes when you see greetings at the end, you're like, who are these people? And why would that be preserved for all of time to be in the Holy Scriptures? And then you come across a a passage of Scripture that says, hey, love well by being affectionate. And here you see in Romans 16, 22 times, Paul calling out specific people by name and saying, oh, greet this person, greet that person. Once in a while he says, greet this person, for they had a church in their home. Greet that person. They were of such good use to me on that one missions trip. Many of his letters, he he ends with saying, and greet one another with, with a holy kiss. There's this warm affection, individual attention that Paul gives to the churches. And I'm convinced that Romans 16 is left here for us so that we can model that, so we can mimic warm affection and care. When you look at life, it's not just a Hallmark card, right? It's not just all peaches and cream as you cruise through life. There's some really difficult things. And sometimes loving someone is, takes on a different form than just a warm greeting. Listen to Galatians 6. It says, Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, send them a Hallmark greeting card and bake them a pie. No, it doesn't say that. If someone is caught in a sin, catch this, you who are spiritual, do you hear the obligation to the strong in faith? You who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So when it comes to loving people really well and showing them affection and care to one person, it actually may be a Hallmark greeting card. 
That may be exactly what's needed. To another person, it might be just bringing a meal to them without being asked. To someone else, it might be actually really being attentive and listening when they invite you out to coffee and not talking a lot, just receiving from them. To someone else, it may be loving them enough to enter into a situation and say, brother, I love you so much, I'm going to risk our friendship by telling you, you're messing up. You made a vow to this woman. Don't you dare go away from that. And so you come in and you love them back toward the truth. Perhaps the most important thing on your to-do list out of this message, I don't know. I don't know what God's telling you. But perhaps one of the most important things you could do this morning is to really be attentive to the people sitting around you when church ends today. To really be attentive to them. To really dial in as an act of worship and say, God, I want to love people well in this church. And I don't want to wait till I'm a pro. And I don't want to wait for someone else to initiate. I want to love well. Do you see that introverts and extroverts can both do that? What's an extrovert going to do? They're probably going to go approach the person. That freaks an introvert out, right? They're going to, I'm not going to go do that. But an introvert might be listening and going, you know what, I overheard that. And as we were talking, I caught that they really enjoy that. I'm going to just bless them this week and anonymously get them one of those. Whatever. Let me tell you something about our church structure. Um, We have very few programs here, and part of the reason is we're really committed to community groups here. We're really committed to kind of a lecture lab format. Some of you went to college, and you took a lecture class where you received a bunch of info, And then it all solidified once you got to be in that lab approach. And you got to take what you learned and actually get your hands dirty and start figuring out, oh, that's how it works. Our lecture lab program is this. This is the lecture. Community groups are the lab. Community groups are where you have an opportunity to be in a room with people at least once a week and hear from them and be attentive to them and learn their names. If someone comes and says, man, I just don't know anyone, I don't know anyone's name. By the way, I see lots of name tags. Great job. That was an application point from last week. Good job. I followed my own advice. I thought it would be very hypocritical not to wear a name tag today. But it's an opportunity for us to get to know each other's names. Start there, right? And then begin to pray for one another. And then really begin to, to love each other well. All right. You also can love well by showing honor, verse 10 says. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. I just, I just love this, because I, I think about competitive people in this room, and I, I know some of you because I'm one of them, and uh, you can be competitive about anything, right? Uh, what, if, what if we got competitive about outdoing one another in showing honor? I mean, what if we really started to think that through and go, man, I'm going to outdo that person right there in showing them honor, in giving them preference, in looking out for their needs? I mean, it'd be kind of ridiculous because we may, no one may ever get out the door. They're like, after you, after you. I insist. I insist, right? And like, we're just trying. But if it's motivated genuinely, not as like, I win and you lose, but as I win when you win. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to build you up. I'm going to be so dialed into what you need and what your needs are that I'm going to start to live out this thing that God's called us to, to actually consider your needs as more important than my own needs. What kind of place would this be, people, if, if, we, if we began to seek to outdo one another in showing each other honor for the glory of Christ? Not to be well-liked by people, but to show off a good father that we have. All right, here's number four. 
Number four is found in verse 11. And it's simply this, shut up the slacker in you. It says this, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. The truth is that you'll be tempted to quit in this often. Here's the simple command, don't. Don't give up on this. You'll be slighted by someone three weeks into this project at this church, trying to welcome really well, and you're going to go, fine, and you're going to go storming off. Or someone's going to slight, you know, kind of, you're trying to be welcoming to them, and you're not going to feel reciprocated, and you're going to go, fine, I'm, I'm going to close off to, to doing that. See, people are just people. I just don't have the gift. I'm not sure what's going on, but I'm going to stop. Don't quit at this. Perhaps even more deadly than outright quitting is just becoming lazy or lacking in diligence with this. That your fervor and spirit, don't you go through seasons where you're like, you read this and you go, yes, Lord, I'm going to do this. I'm going to serve other people today. And then halfway through the day, you're like, tomorrow, tomorrow's the day. I'm really tired today. And my blood sugar's a little bit off. Tomorrow's going to be one of those days where I'm really going to serve people. And then that day comes and you're like, stink. I have a flesh nature and it's really frustrating me right now. Don't give up. One of the things that um, we see in Scripture is all kinds of examples. Let me just show you one. This is Epaphras from Colossians chapter 4. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. There's the sincere love component that we just saw before. It goes on to say, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. There's the constant hard work of prayer. It goes on to say, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in these two cities. So shut up the slacker and keep on serving. One of the ways that you do that is you get around other people who are committed to doing that as well. When you go to work out for the first time, there's a slacker in you that says, sleep in. Don't push so hard. Sweat is gross, right? And so you, you have to have this voice that says, I'm not listening to you. And one of the ways you say I'm not listening to you is you get around other people who are shutting up the slacker in them, right? Some of you go out and hire a personal trainer. You pay someone to help shut up the slacker in you, right? Hey, I can't do it on my own. Would you shut up the slacker in me, please? Because I don't have the strength to do it. Here's some money. I will pay you to shut the slacker up in me. But just getting around your workout buddies, getting around people who are like-minded in this and saying, we are not going to love poorly. We are not going to love hypocritically. We're not going to do more of the same. We're going to love well. We're going to grow in our affection. We're going to grow in putting other people's honor above our own. Do you see how countercultural this is? Do you see how wacky it would be if you've never tasted of this and you walked in through those doors and you thought something freaky is going on in here? It almost seems like people care about other people's glory and God's glory more than their own. That's different than the rest of the world. All right, number five. Never forget where we are going and how we'll get there. This is verse 12. Paul speaks of the hope. He's already talked about this in, in chapter 5, about the, this hope that we have, and he's simply reminding it here. Our hope is secure. Rejoice in that. This is going to be really tough, but rejoice in the hope that's already there. There's tribulation coming. We will get there, but it's going to be through fire. Tribulation, by the way, is our fancy church word for this really stinks, or ugh, right? Like life is just filled with a bunch of junk 
and you just go, man, this is not how it's supposed to be. It's not how I thought it was going to be mapped out, but here I am. And finally, he says in verse 12, to pray. This is one huge means of provision from God. We saw from Epaphras that it's hard work to pray. I love Ethan's testimony from uh, last week or two weeks ago up at Wildwood. After you get through the first 10 minutes of kind of, you know, conversational politeness with God, then what? You've got another 50 minutes of this solo time. Then what are you going to pray about? That's when you start to go deep and you start to to really um, discuss with God what's going on in your life. One of the ways that you can rehearse this weekly is in this room. is to sit and be, and be doing this. But, but if our strength of relationship only and always is just what goes on on Sunday mornings, we're a really thinly shallow church in terms of our relationships. I always love hearing about uh, different groups that are getting together. And sometimes it's for a service project. Sometimes it's to go to Great America. Sometimes it's to go and, and have a Bible study. Sometimes it's to go and hang out and have coffee and do life together. Again, community groups are a structure, kind of a a program to kind of nudge us toward that, to make it this consistent thing. You ever get to a place where you go, man, it's been too long. It's been like three months. Where does the time go? One of the things community group does, it says, at 7 o'clock on Thursday night, I'm going to be there. And you're going to be there. And we're going to do this stuff together. We're going to get around each other. And we're going to remind one another of our hope that's secure. We're going to remind each other, hey, that tribulation you're going through, man, that was predicted. That doesn't make it any easier, but know that it's there. Let's pray about it. Let's not pray because that's how you're supposed to close off community group. Let's pray because that's our lifeline. And God, we need to hear from you. And you need to act on this or else we're in a world of hurt. Number six is this, and it's found in verse 13. Seek to show hospitality. The handle I want to give you this morning is this. Hunt for ways to share. Hunt for ways to give of yourself. Hunt for ways to welcome people in. Proslumbano, to receive, to grab hold of them and say, you're with me. You're sitting with me at church today. In fact, that's not enough. We're going to drive in together. I'm going to grab hold of you, and you're going to be my friend. Hunt for ways to share and welcome in. Do you see the proactive nature of this? We talked about proactive last week. This is you praying and responding to what God's telling you to do, dreaming up ways to welcome in. Jesus is such an example here. There's never a shortage of needs. He chose to see needs, and he was proactive. And do you see how creative he is in dealing with people? He doesn't have his standard lines that he just gives. He doesn't just do the backslap to everyone. Oh, that's my way, I backslap. He's, he's, he's personal with people, and he speaks to them where they're at. Verse 13 also says this, contribute to the needs of the saints. One of the things that that says is this, it's not all on you. Most of you will come across needs. If you choose to start seeing needs, you will see needs that are massive and it frightens you. And you go, there's no way I could meet that. I don't have the time to devote to this person for what they really need. And therefore, we sometimes remain isolated from one another, don't we? We just say, you know what, I can't handle that. Contribute to the needs of the the saints, says this. There have been so many deeper friendships that I have in this room right here and will happen next service because of people that have partnered with me in meeting needs of other people. And it's not just been on me. I don't have to lose sleep as if it's all up to me. There's a team of people who say, we're going to go in and love this person really, really well. 
And we've seen remarkable things go on because I wasn't willing to take it all on and then realize I can't do that and stop doing it. Instead, I said, I'll contribute what I can give. And someone else said, I'll contribute what I can give. And someone else said that. And lives begin to change because of that. We're going to stop here due to time, but the scriptures don't stop. I want you to, at some point, to read on to the end of the chapter. It goes on to talk about blessing and rejoicing and weeping with other people and living in peace and not being prideful and point, like make a purpose, proactively associate with people um, of low status and to overcome evil with good. Again, this second half of, of Romans 12 is exhilarating because you look at that and go, yes, yes, I want that, and it's exhausting you're not careful. You look at it and go, what? How on earth can I even begin to tackle this? We just finished a series called Red Words. And I want to close with this thought um, from one of the messages out of that series. You know, Jesus uh, evidently thought that the Holy Spirit was super important. He said over and over to his disciples that he was sending a helper, that the comforter would come. Like he's instructed them, wait here until the Holy Spirit comes. You guys can't possibly do this without the Holy Spirit. The message that I'm referring to is one that we called fuel for the faithful. And the main driving point from these passages and from the Christian life is this, that the Holy Spirit is mandatory for living the life God's called you to. If you want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, you must possess the Holy Spirit. You must walk and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. If we could visualize this about those who do and don't, uh, let me show you a picture from yesterday. Yesterday, I was at the beach, and I saw a guy um, not just walking on the water, but it would have been in the pace of sprinting across the water. That's how fast this person was going uh, across the horizon. And he was going back and forth. And sadly, he was taunting my son, because my son Ethan and his cousin were in the water, and my son was going at a snail's pace. It was actually kind of embarrassing. And this guy was taunting him, going back and forth, screaming back and forth across the horizon. What's the difference between these two? Ethan's doing it on his own power and going really slow. And the other guy is harnessing the wind, right? Quite simply. And if you can see the Christian life, if we go at it alone, the way that we will love will not be well. The way that we will live will not be well. We were never meant to go it alone. You know, the, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the wind in the scriptures. Does this guy have any control over the wind? No. In fact, at one point I was watching him closely. He's ripping along, and at one point I saw him just fighting because he hit kind of a, a lull. And he had to really work to keep his kite up in the air, and then he got going again. He has no control of the wind, but he knows how to cooperate with the wind. And as he cooperates with the wind, he's doing remarkable things. Band, why don't you come on up? I close with this. If you're Ethan or Caleb floating in the water, bobbing there by yourself, kind of going at a snail's pace, not able to do a whole lot, and you see this person ripping back and forth, I hope what that does in you is not, man, I should really swim faster I think if I move my legs really, really fast, like a cartoon, I could maybe run across the water too. I hope that that person bobbing in the water, going it alone, it clues into their mind, I was never meant to be able to live out Romans 12, 9 to 13 on my own power. Love well 
put other people's needs ahead of my own. All these things, there's no possible way. So it drives us to look for help. The Holy Spirit is the helper. Uh, In your bulletin, you don't need to write any of this down, but in your bulletin is a partial list of what the indwelling Holy Spirit provides to the Christian. So every time that you hear the slacker in you say, I can't be patient with people. It's just kind of me. Shut up the slacker in you by pointing to the Holy Spirit that produces patience. Isn't that one of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Let's pray. God, we need those things in our life. How revolutionary would our families be, would our marriages be, would our neighborhoods be, would our politics and schools and businesses be if we were to live out the good that is hidden in plain sight? It's not for lack of Bibles and knowledge that we don't understand this as a, na- as a nation, as a culture, as a church. God, forgive us for not clinging to this. Would you raise this in importance in our minds and in our hearts such that we think on this and ruminate on it and come back to it and not let go of it? Spirit, we're here to avail ourselves to you. God, help us cooperate to keep in step with the Holy Spirit in our life and in our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.